quick programming note before we get started with today's episode. Over the next few months, At Liberty will be home to a variety of guest hosts. These hosts will be ACLU staff who have a wide variety of expertise and are excited to share that with you. We'll start with Amber Hikes. Amber is the ACLU's Chief Equity and Inclusion Officer. She is also a social justice advocate, community organizer, and unapologetic queer Black woman. Prior to joining the ACLU, Amber served as the Executive Director of the Philadelphia Mayor's Office of LGBTQ Affairs, where she developed policy and served as the Principal Advisor to the Mayor on issues that affected the LGBTQ community. Oh, and did I mention Amber just gave a TED Talk? We'll link to it in the show notes. You're in great hands with Amber as host. Enjoy the show. From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Amber Hikes, Chief Equity and Inclusion Officer at the ACLU and your host for the next month. More than 100 anti-trans bills have been levied in states across the country this year. These bills range from blocking trans youth from seeking health care to banning trans students from participating in school sports. In Texas, lawmakers are getting ready to move forward House Bill 25 the law that will change the landscape of sports for trans people in the state. For Skylar Baylor, former Division I NCAA swimmer, these threats and discrimination are familiar. As the first openly transgender man to compete at his level in college athletics, he's had to break boundaries both within institutions and within public opinion to be allowed to compete and be seen as a competitor. Those trying to ban trans students from school sports often center the debate on trans women with claims rooted in transphobia and refuted by scientific experts that trans women have an unfair advantage. One of the additional consequences of the focus on this argument is that we hear less from athletes who are trans men. This gap in perspective is one of the many reasons we're excited to have Skylar with us today. Skylar, thank you so much for joining us and happy LGBTQ History Month. Thank you so much. Happy LGBTQ Plus History Month to you as well. I'm really excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And so Skylar, it's actually fitting that we're in conversation during LGBTQ Plus History Month because you, my friend, are LGBTQ history, <laughs> you are American history, you're sports history, <laughs> of course, again, as the first trans athlete to compete in an NCAA Division I men's team. I had the profound privilege of hearing you speak this summer at the Brooklyn Museum and at the Brooklyn Liberation March. And you spoke so powerfully about your personal experience as a trans athlete and the need for all of us to protect trans youth in sports, in schools and in our family and our everyday lives. So let's start there. Can you tell us why it was important to you to speak at that event and what message you hope people took away from your words that day? Well, first of all, thanks so much for the kind words. The Brooklyn Liberation March was an absolute honor to even be asked to be speaking at. I was so excited to go there. I've never actually spoken at a rally before, but it was such a powerful event. I mean, I spent most of the day in and out of tears. It was a wonder to me that I didn't cry on stage just because of the the power of seeing so many other trans youth around me and seeing so many trans adults rally around us. And then of course the allies and the non-trans people around there too, that was powerful. But there's something uniquely powerful about a ton of trans youth um, and especially trans youth of color, especially a lot of black and indigenous trans youth. There was so much like just raw trans youth power that I just was so... I don't know what the right word is. I'm empowered to be around. 
I've never been in a space like that before. So I think that that was what I kind of came away with. There's so many anti-transgender pieces of legislation going around the country, mostly focused on trans youth in sports, which I, as a trans person and once a trans youth who is an athlete, that's deeply personal to me. And the thing is, sports are actually so central to so many different parts of our lives, even if you're not an athlete, because the, the weaponization of trans women, for example, in women's sports, trans girls and girls sports is not truly about sports. It's not truly about trans people. It's all about this, this policing of bodies that don't fit the, the white cis hetero patriarchy. So I think there's just in terms of breaking down these systems of oppression that we, I think, are just barely picking away at right now. It made so much sense. And I, I think that in your words, you really captured, again, you said you said power several times. And I think that's exactly what rises to the surface for me when I think about that day, the power that was in that space and the power that comes from, of course, centering the folks who are most impacted, right? right? So I want to turn a little bit to your, your personal story. And I'd love for you to start telling us about your love for swimming. When did you start swimming and how quickly did it become more than just a passion for you? Sure. So I actually learned how to swim the same time I learned how to walk, which was about 10 months old. I've been swimming as long as I can remember. And I wasn't always good at it when I was a kid. I think it was just something that I truly enjoyed, that I found safety in. I, you know, from a very young age, I think struggled with gender, but I didn't really know that's what I was struggling with. I just knew I didn't fit in. And I think that even so, I think it's an interesting dichotomy where swimming is is probably the most gendered thing I ever did, right? The suits are incredibly gendered. The fact that you have to compete on different teams in different arenas, there's different qualifying times, right? Very gendered sport. And still for me, it was the one place I felt like I could depart from gender. I, I jumped in the pool and it didn't matter what I was wearing or who I was with or what gender was swimming next to me. I was just swimming. And I think swimming is a unique sport in that sense as well. You don't see your body a whole lot. You're not really in your body. You're in water. So there's this really beautiful departure from a gendered reality, if you will, for me underwater where I just got to be myself. I didn't have to be a body. I didn't have to be a girl or a boy or a gender or, or anything. I really was just the act, right? The pure act of swimming through the water. The more I've reflected on that, the more I've sort of understood the own, my own safety in water. And I think that's one of the reasons that I that I survived my childhood. I think it's one of the things that brought me the most joy and, and passion and purpose in childhood. So if we move forward in, in your story, you know, you get recruited by Harvard to compete for the, the women's team as a breaststroker. And you are, of course, one of the top recruits. And then you take this gap year to address an issue that's been impacting your life in a, in a significant way. Um, you spoke openly about grappling with an eating disorder. And so while my understanding is, well, in the midst of that treatment, you begin to acknowledge and grapple with something else that's been bubbling at the surface, which is, of course, your gender identity. But but here's here's what I want to ask you. Tell us what that was like for you that year and then after. Swimming is a very intense, very um, daily, if not multiple times daily sport. You don't get breaks. We don't take breaks for the most part. There's like two weeks we took off in August, but it's mostly a year-round sport. So taking a, a year off, I think, was very difficult for me. But I will add that I was in a place where it was really that or or really the end of my life. Like I really was struggling with my mental health. And I was, I was kind of kind of pulling at straws at that point. I didn't really know where else to go. And my therapist was like, listen, you, you are gonna run yourself into the ground. And your options are continue to run yourself into the ground. And you can maybe you'll do well in school, but you're gonna be miserable. Or maybe you're gonna do well in the pool, but you're gonna be miserable. And it was the, always the options where you're gonna be miserable if you don't take a pause. And I was like, well, I didn't. 
I didn't plan on being miserable for my whole life. That was not in my life goals. So I, I guess I should take this risk. And it, it really was a risk, right? I could have lost my coaches because maybe they said, hey, we don't have a spot for you anymore. If you take a gap year, I could have lost all of my athletic ability. Who knows what a year off was going to do for me? I could have lost a lot of friends because I was going to be a year behind. And what does that mean? But but I was like, you know, the options are really that I take this break and try to figure out what my mental health is like, um, or I continue running myself into misery. And I, I don't, I don't really want to do that misery thing. Well, different people are breaking points for different reasons. And so you using your own example is, is letting people know that if you if you don't take care of yourself, right, you, you may not get the opportunity to kind of fulfill those other dreams that you have there in the future. So I think that that's such an important reminder for us. You take the time now or you kind of pay for it later oh, yeah, is, what totally. I, is what I heard you say. That was, that was the message that was given to me. And I was lucky to have people around me who who said that in, in transparency. My, my dad was very clear with me. He was like, if you don't do this now, you will have to do it later and it will be worse later. And I want to, I also want to add, and this is just really important to me whenever I do mental health advocacy or, or activism awareness building is that I, I had access to those resources. And I, and I think that's another arm of this conversation is that access to mental health resources. We just had that. And then the primary barrier to mental health is, is access. People don't have access to it. And once they do have access, there's not a whole lot of cultural competency across a lot of marginalized identities, right? Not a lot of people are taught about trans and non-binary experiences. Not a lot of people taught are about indigenous or black experiences, or even Asian American BIPOC mixed race experiences. And one of the most recent uh, statistics I read is that people who are identified as having more than two races or being of more than two races have the highest rate of mental health issues. And as somebody who's mixed race, I that makes a ton of sense to me because we're caught between worlds in a world that polarizes everything. So there's just a lot there. And I just wanted to sort of add that in because I think that oftentimes these conversations, especially surrounding my experience, are like, oh my God, like it's so brave, Scott, that you went to this thing and you did this thing and you were able to like talk about it. Yes. I and I appreciate the compliments. And it was built on privilege that I was able to do those things too. Oh my gosh, Skylar, I'm telling you, you're, you're just, you're checking all these boxes for me <laughs> as a, as a diversity and inclusion practitioner, as a social worker. Um, let's, let's actually talk about that experience, right? Sure. So now you, you, you want to start college, you come out as trans, you have to make this decision about swimming, yep, right? Yep. So what was it like to pursue swimming and how did those conversations go with your, your coaches at, at Harvard with, with teammates? Tell me, tell me about what that looked like. Yeah. So I just kind of took a leap of faith. I, I figured out that I was trans in the summer of, of 2014. That was the summer I had was, you know, the beginning of the summer where I had the gap year and I figured out that I was trans and I was like, what do I do? <laughs> maybe I will just, maybe I'm going to lose everything with this. I could lose my, my, you know, my part on the team. I could lose my coaches. I could lose Harvard. I could lose swimming. Like, what do I do? You know, but I realized that I was spending all this time trying to find myself and be honest with myself that, that I actually owed it to myself, if nobody else, right. To be honest with my coaches. So I said very frankly to them, you know, I'm transgender. I don't know what this means, what's going to happen. I have no idea even what I want it to mean. I just know that I am boy <laughs> and I'm transgender. And yeah, that's it. And that's what I started with. It was really open-ended. And luckily for me, here's another privilege as well. This is time of privilege of, of luck, honestly. My coach, Steph, uh, Steph Morawski, the women's coach at Harvard was like, okay, I have no idea what this means. I've never met another trans person, but we're going to figure it out. And that was huge just to have that acceptance, right? To have that openness. It was, she, I mean, she didn't know what, where we were going to go, what was going to happen or what the implications were. But she said to me, Skylar, happy swimmers are fast swimmers and I'm a mother before anything else. And I want you to be happy. So let's figure this out. And we did. 
What did this kind of an inclusion and acceptance do for you as a young person who had struggled so much with, with coming out about, about gender identity? And what did it mean to have allies and a steady support system in your coaches and in your, your fellow teammates? It's life-saving. I mean, there's no other way to put it, right? When we have people who accept us for who we are, and it can be any, anything can go underneath the umbrella of who we are. When we have people who accept us for who we are, we feel like we belong in the world. When we feel like we belong in the world, we want to stay in it. And there are so many messages for trans and queer people about how we don't belong in this world from the media, from schools, from teachers, from parents, from coaches, from the, the government, right? Especially the last administration. So when that's out there, every supportive person means that much more because they're not in a sea of love. They're in a sea of hatred. And so when you have somebody say, hey, I love you for who you are, I'm here, that's their beacon. And so my coaches who who just said, let's figure this out, we care about you. Every person who said that to me was life-saving, especially at the time. And for me, as somebody who was wrestling with sport, not competing in sport felt life ending as well. So I had multiple things. It wasn't just that I was coming out as trans. I was going to lose everything I thought that I had worked for. And even when I, when I was actually offered the spot on the men's team and I'm jumping forward in my story so that the men's coach actually was like, so why don't you swim for the men's team? Which and it's a right massive, massively progressive that he did that. Again, another huge privilege I had and a double luck because not only was Steph supportive, but so was Kevin, the men's coach. Like, what are the chances? Very low. But when he offered me the spot, I actually declined it at first because there was so much that I had worked for to be this amazing athlete on the women's side, swimming before I was one, becoming a national level athlete in middle school and high school, right? All of that would be gone in the instant that I started to compete on the men's team. And that didn't mean nothing to me. So there was a lot that I was leaving behind. For a lot of people, there isn't, they're not holding on to something in their gender, right, that they were assigned. So for me, I was holding on to this massive identity as a female athlete. I didn't know what to do with that. So that was really, really complicated in sort of that process. And I feel like for people who were never athletes or never played in competitive sports and certainly never played at the level that, that you did, it could be hard to understand just how much inclusion in sports can yeah. mean and what a profound loss it is to have it taken from yeah. you. And I feel like that's something that gets lost totally. in a lot of these conversations when we're talking about trans youth in, in sports. Is, is there more that you want to tell us about how those kinds of bills can impact trans students and athletes on that, that individual kind of micro? Sure. Yeah, I really appreciate you bringing that to sort of under a spotlight. I, I think that people discount sports a lot. And especially for youth, it's like, whatever, it's just sports. Sports are where a lot of people learn a lot of things about themselves, where they finally get connected with their bodies, which is a huge thing, especially for trans youth, but just from anybody. And especially people who are marginalized in some kind of ways, because a lot of people with marginalized identities and from marginalized communities have their bodies taken from them in one way or another by white supremacy and the patriarchy and colonialism, right? So sports can be about reclaiming your own empowerment and agency to your body, even if you're losing. It's just about playing. It's just about connecting. Beyond that, and this is from like more of a developmental psychology, developmental biology thing, it's about developing like motor skills. It's about connecting with your body in a way of like, can I, can I run? Can I like throw a ball around? Do I have hand-eye coordination? Can I learn about team sports, which is a massively important part of working in the world as a human with humans? Can I learn about tenacity, determination, having a schedule, showing up when I don't want to? Sports are a human right. Sports are a way we connect with ourselves and others that is so crucial. And you know what? 
if you don't want to do sports, that's fine too. I'm not trying to say everybody has to play a sport, but I'm saying if you want to, you should be allowed to. And it's not just sports. They are so important in development for young people specifically. And trans kids deserve that as well. They do. That's 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 exactly right. It's <laughs> taking me back to, to high school or when I and when I played sports and really everything that I learned about myself and the way that I move through the world, even the way that I, I work with other people, right? <laughs> it's there, there are lessons that I learned in playing sports that I, I truly couldn't have learned anywhere else and, and frankly, and frankly didn't. And so to rob students of that opportunity based solely on their gender identity is a particular, it's a particular violence. Yeah. And I think you hit on something else that I wanted to expand on. One of my friends who is an advocate within Native communities reminded me of this recently. And he said, sports are also a place where we have a community, a family that we might not get other places. There's a way that we have mentorship. It's a hierarchy, but not of a sort of peer, but like mentorship happening on a sports teams. We have maybe a father or a mother or a parent figure in some way from a coach. These are things that a lot of people, especially in really marginalized communities that might not have access to that at home, right? Maybe they don't have parents at home. Maybe their parents are working three jobs. Maybe they don't have, they literally don't have parents and, and they are, you know, in the foster care system. So the complexity here is that we don't have family units in a way that you know we should for so many people and sports can deliver that. Sports can be a place where we have siblings, where we have parents, where we have mentorship that is free from a lot of the standards in the world or should be free from a lot of the systems of oppressions in the world where you can just be judged on how well you compete in that sport. And all of these legislation threaten these things. And it doesn't just threaten access for trans people, it threatens access for a lot of people outside of that. Because when we start policing people's bodies, we police everybody's bodies. We don't just get to pick the trans ones because in order to pick the trans ones, you have to know which ones are trans. And in order to do that, you got to test them. And if you test them, who do you test? You can't feasibly test everybody, nor is every parent going to concede to every single kid getting tested. So you're going to have to do it based on accusation testing, which means you have to pick one to accuse, right? How are you going to accuse them? Upon what basis are you going to say this person needs to be tested? It's all about policing bodies. At what point is a girl too masculine to be accused of being transgender? At what point is a girl too tall, her hair too short, her clothes too baggy, whatever else, too, she might be too good. At mm -hmm. this point. But at what point is she any of these two X, right, to be accused right. of being transgender? And then here's the race piece that gets dragged into this as well. We already have these massively detrimental standards against specifically Black and Indigenous women in sports. We see that already. Simone Biles, uh, Castor Semenya, Serena Williams, the list goes on, of accusing Black women of being, quote, too masculine, or actually with Simone Biles, too good, whatever <laughs> that means. Mm -hmm. And so there's these standards are going to disproportionately affect Black and other women of color, and people don't think about that. This backlash absolutely connects to a longer history of policing bodies of women, and I would say specifically, as you've already said, Black and Indigenous women in, in sports. And it's just, it's, again, it's an extensive history. We continue to see it. It's something that's just deeply concerning. If I can stay in this kind of gender equity space, I want to say that proponents of excluding trans folks from sports claim that they are defending women's rights. Of course, you know. But of course, these very same people generally do absolutely nothing to actually advocate for gender equity in sports. 
But if we have those listeners who are saying, I think I got played. I need some help to get on the right side of this. I, I need to find out what I can do to, to kind of walk back some of the mistakes that I made here. What, what would you say to these folks, the, the folks that want to help fight against these bills? I have a lot of thoughts. Follow trans athletes. Listen to us instead of the right-wing media. Don't wonder, mm, is this fair? No, talk to us. See what we're like. We're actually people. We're actually people who have competed in sports, who care deeply about equity in sports. I don't want to compete in a sport that's unfair. That's not what my goal is. So absolutely, I think we should actually be listening to people like me. And I obviously can't represent everybody. So go follow other trans athletes too. I would recommend Cece Telfer, who is a black trans woman, who is an amazing runner. Andrea Yearwood, also a black trans woman, who's an amazing runner. And there's many more. So follow us, you know, actually listen to who we are. And as you learn about who we are, you're going to hopefully see us as humans, not as that other over there that you don't understand, but a person who has emotions like you and who deserves to play sports just like you. So that's why I encourage you to actually, you know, because everybody's on their feed all the time, right? Scrolling through Instagram, scroll through Instagram and see trans people. Yeah, you diversify your feed, you diversify your world and your perspective. I think it's brilliant. I really don't think that we should be diminishing the importance and the significance of our social media feeds. We consume a lot of media. And for, for a lot of us, that is kind of our connection to communities outside of, of our own. Especially during the pandemic. Oh my gosh, exactly. With the isolation that folks were experiencing, that, that was your social connection. I talk a lot in my work about the responsibility of allyship and accompliceship. And you've just kind of perfectly set us up there. This, this need for all of us to find ways that we can show up for one another. And I believe deeply that the call for cisgender people, and of course that's, that's people whose gender identity is aligned with the sex that they were assigned at birth. I think it's really important for us to be thinking about what cisgender folks can be doing to in engage around these problematic narratives, right? I always tell people that the most important step of allyship after number one, which is being an ally, number two is being an ally to people who wouldn't normally be an ally, right? So if you're here listening to this, Chances are you care somewhat. You have some kind of care, some kind of stake. Maybe you know somebody's trans. Maybe you thought about it. Maybe you're interested, whatever. You're here because some part of you wanted to be here, which is great. And I'm so glad you're here and thank you for listening. Now, your job is to go talk about this with somebody who would never listen to this podcast, who would never go to my website, who would never think of following me on Instagram. Those are the people that it's your job to reach because I can't reach them because they won't come here. That's right. The messenger matters. We know the messenger matters. And you have to be the person that carries that message. There are small ways that you can do allyship every single day that will impact lives. Because the reality is that in order for society to change, what is society made up of? Individual people. And every single individual, if you take a step forward to be an ally, if you follow one trans person and actually listen to them, if you digest this podcast and you take it forwards with your heart, that will help change society. That's it. You've documented much of your transition on YouTube, on Instagram. Tell us why. It, first of all, that's it's it's such a gift. It's not a thing that that trans and non-binary folks owe owe anyone else. But why have you chosen to be so open about your journey? What impact has that had on you? What what do you hope um, is the impact that it has on the world? Well, you know, I think at the beginning of it, I. I made videos because I saw other people doing it, to be quite honest with you, at the, very, at the very beginning of it. So that was like, do I even make a video? Sure. At least I see other people doing it. That's kind of cool. I'll try. And then I also realized that there weren't many people like me at the time. 
And there still kind of aren't in many ways. I'm a very much 1% or 1%. I'm a Korean American queer transgender swimmer. It's just not a lot of us. There are others and they're coming out and it's so cool when they email me and say, oh my God, Skylar, I'm also a Korean American trans swimmer. I'm like, oh my God, that's amazing. But there wasn't that visibility at all before I came out. And so I think as I talked a little bit about myself online here and there, I realized that people needed that. And I thought a lot about, I mean, initially it was me trying to gain support. I didn't have support. I didn't know who to go to. And I was like, well, if I talk about myself online, somebody might have advice, right? So it actually, my Instagram account, Pink Mantra, started as actually a completely anonymous account. That's why it's Pink Mantra and has nothing to do with my name that was seeking support. My first post said, hi, I'm a trans guy. I have no idea what I'm doing. I just am looking for support. I don't know what to do about swimming. It feels like the world's ending help. It was something just like that. And with my head cut off, it was just from here down. <laughs> and that's how I built a community for myself. And so as I gained more language to talk about my journey, as I learned what I needed, as I figured out what my next steps were, I just kept sharing. And as I did, I kind of flipped and I became the person to provide support and to provide guidance. And there was something so beautiful and empowering and recharging, healing, if you will, about that process, because I got to be the representation that I didn't have. And that is the sole reason that I've continued to do the work that I do, which is to say that I want those kids who are Googling transgender swimmer to find somebody. And I didn't. I Googled transgender swimmer every day for months when I was coming out and nothing came up. And now if you Google transgender swimmer, I pop up. And it's not about me, Skylar, popping up. It's about somebody. Because that face, right, somebody being in, the, in that search return says to that kid, hey, you belong here. And not only do you belong here, but you can also thrive here. And that is the goal of my journey in sharing it in my vulnerability. I love that. In all of my work, I try to emphasize the importance of joy and celebration in, in our movement yeah. work. I truly believe yes. that joy is as essential to our liberation as protest is, as critique, as struggle. So I want to end our time talking about trans joy. And so what does trans joy, what does trans liberation mean to you? What does it look like to you? It's a really good question. So one of my friends is also a, a trans advocate, if you will. Her name is Mila Jam. She's a, a Black trans woman who is just an incredible person. And one time we were talking about this, trans joy, and she said, I want a future in which trans joy is familiar. And that really hit me. And I thought about the fact that there are so many people who will even, like trans people specifically, who will reject joy because they don't know what it's like to hold because trans joy is so unfamiliar to them because of the way the world works, especially if you hold other marginalized identities, you know, for example, being BIPOC or maybe disabled, something else, right? Joy does not feel familiar. And, and because of that, we internalize that we don't deserve it. I envision a future in which trans joy is familiar. Trans joy feels like present, that trans joy feels accessible, um, and that all trans people believe they deserve their own joy. I don't think that we're there yet. I think that there, there is so much to be learned about our experiences in other communities, right? I feel like the world has a lot to go in their ignorance. But I do think we find it in moments. And what I want to encourage, especially any trans people listening to this, is that your joy is, is your life itself. And you deserve it. And you should hold on to it. You belong in it. And anybody who brings you in that space, cultivate that. It's about feeling like our futures are also possible. And that's one of the reasons that my book is so important to me, because this is a story about a kid who is possible. And he happens to be trans. And I think that we don't see stories about trans adults. We don't see any, this is not about an adult, but it's about somebody, right? We don't believe in the world. We don't see trans stories about kids, trans adults, trans people who 
live beyond their transness. And when I say that, I mean that, that their transness isn't their only thing, that we have more to give the world than coming out stories and transformation photos. Those can be important, sure, but we're more than that. And I want the world to see that, and I want to show that, and that's one of the reasons I share about my life as well, because I am trans, but I also am so many other things. So trans joy is, is possibility. It's envisioning ourselves possible, thriving in the future. Thank you so much, Skylar. Thank you so much for giving us a vision of trans joy and liberation and freedom and reminding us that trans joy is familiar. And that's what trans joy will be familiar for so for so many. I am so grateful for this conversation and grateful for the example of you in the world and everything that you stand for and everything that you've done. Thank you so much, Skylar. Thank you, Amber. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please be sure to subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcast and rate and review the show. We really appreciate the feedback. Until next week, keep fighting. We didn't come this far to only come this far. Mm-hmm.